Hi, I'm Akko. And I'm Marcy. And welcome to the Color Pages Book Club, a bi-weekly podcast that, as you know, focuses on fiction, fantasy, and magical realism written by mm. writers from colorful backgrounds. Hey, yes, yes, yes. And today we'll actually be interviewing Jiaqing Wilson Yang, author of Small Beauty, which, as you all know, we've been reading as part of our book club for the past several yes. weeks. But yes, so before we get into all of that, just a quick bio. So Jiaqing is a writer and gender-based violence support worker living in Toronto, on, Toronto, Ontario, on the Dish with one spoon territory. Her work has appeared in Poetry is Dead, Rice Paper Magazine, Carte Blanche, My Son I did not pronounce that right. Well, that's and French. That, yeah, because she, she doesn't speak French, uh, but it's cool. In Room Magazine. Her novel, Small Beauty, won the 2006 Lambda Literary Award for Transgender Fiction and received a Dane Ogilvy Honor of Distinction for Emerging LGBTQ Writers from the Writers' Trust of Canada. So without further ado, oh my God, hi, Jiaqing. How are you? Hi, I'm doing really well. Yeah, thanks for having me on your of show. Of course, of course. Oh my yes. gosh, yeah, we loved reading Small Beauty, so I am so, 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 thanks. so excited to <laughs> talk about it. Cool. Yes, but before we get into that, as we all know, audience who may or may not be listening, I (laughs) once again have a question. So, Jiaqing, me and Mm -hmm. Marcy, last time when we were reading your book, were thinking really hard about the fact that Nai Nai really just appears out of nowhere. In fact, everyone really just appears out of nowhere (laughs) to come and give some advice. And yeah. had us thinking <laughs> which <laughs> ancestral individual from our lives or even not from our lives would we want to come and talk to us or if we could talk to them. And so we wanted to ask you the same question. Who would you want to come and talk to you if you had a chance? Hmm. That's a tricky question, right? Because there's so many of my ancestors that I would love to meet. Most of my Chinese family is either still in China or they're in Australia. So I, I don't see them a lot. And most of my elders have passed on Mm. um but Mm. i think if i was gonna meet one of my ancestors again i would really love to meet my i called her my chingbu but she's my grandmother my nai nai um she died when i was a teenager um Mm -hmm. but long before i was out as a trans woman and living the life that i have now and i definitely miss her a lot and she was like one of the mm-hmm. one of the on, only examples I think I had of like femininity and fabulousness and mm. all of this. Mm. Um, but she also really loved art. She uh, was an opera singer in speaking uh, oh opera. Oh wow! Like a- amateur kind of thing. So we have some really beautiful photos of her uh, mm-hmm. doing that work. And yeah, I ne- those were things about her that I never really got to know because she was quite sick. Mm. for most Mm. of my adolescence so we didn't have those conversations but yeah I would love to meet her again and talk to her about art and fashion and (laughs) things like that (laughs) because she's so lovely yeah I think she'll have good advice yeah wow do you have recordings of of her singing or anything like that like I don't we have um some silent footage of it Mm -hmm. uh, her singing and like dancing a little bit, but I don't have any audio of it. I wish that I did. Got you. Yeah. Because the Peking Opera is no joke, people. Like that's not only it's amazing and the stories are astounding, but also 
a lot of the theater in Eastern Asia emulates the picking opera as well. Like it's it's very mm. popular and like well established. So the fact that your grandma did that is really dope. Right. <laughs> right? Like she did that. That's right. amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like... That's not a baking cookies type of situation. Not that there's anything wrong with cookie baking. Yeah. Right. Like, all talents, but I mean, right. my God. That's yeah. woof. Wow. Yeah. So to, I guess, slide into the interview portion mm-hmm. of the episode. Um, so we typically like to just kind of ask folks sort of like, I guess, how they got into writing and stuff like yes. that. Um, yeah. And so yeah, we would love to just hear like what your journey as a writer has like looked like through time. Through time, writing through time. Um, well, I think like a lot of folks that I know, I started writing a lot when I was in my early adolescence, like my, my tweens. preteens right sorry um yes (laughs) yeah i started started writing a lot like middle school like lots of angry and very (laughs) depressed poetry like filling little notebooks of that and um i had always really liked writing and always really wanted to be a writer but it it seemed really hard like i loved reading and just Mm -hmm. swallowed books and read most of the books in the fantasy section of the library in the town that i grew up in sort of like bookworm through the stacks and Mm. I started writing a lot of song lyrics and I was playing in a lot of bands Um, and then that sort of sometimes like ideas would be too big for a song or I'd want to express more Mm. than could happen and so I started making little zines oh wow a couple of little like storybook zines this is sort of now when I'm in my 20s and a roommate of mine when I was living in Montreal, who I had also known in Guelph, where I lived for a long time, mm-hmm. another town in Ontario. She was really Ashley Fortier, who started Metonymy with her business partner, Oliver Fugler. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I was living with Ashley and Ashley was like, you know, if you ever write anything, let's figure out a way to publish it. And I kind of didn't take it seriously. I was like, oh, yeah, cool. We'll publish yeah. it. I don't know. Like, you know, because right. people have <laughs> ideas. And like, you know, I was like making zines and, you know being a punk and um yes <laughs> not expecting that we, anything would come of it but actually uh-huh. is like on top of stuff and so is oliver and a little while after i moved to toronto i got this call out that was like metonymy press is a thing we're looking for authors and then actually was like hey if you have anything let's do something so i started going through my hard drive and pulling out bits of stories that i had and starting to synthesize them into what became small beauty and sent them mm-hmm. something and they liked it and they're like you should finish this so they gave me a year and i took what i had and sort of worked with it with them and yeah they were amazing editors actually it was so helpful like mm. at the time i don't think i realized how great they were at being editors like with the story because it's like oh i'm working with two white people i don't know how this is gonna be like is this gonna mm-hmm be edited in the way that I want it to. But after working with mm-hmm. lots of other editors in different magazines, I'm like, actually, they gave me quite a wide berth and let me write a mm. weird book with no coherent chronology, right? Like the, right. the, <laughs> the timing in Small Beauty is all over the place. And they, mm. so, yeah, I think it was really 
through the encouragement of them that I started to write more seriously. So interesting. Yeah. Once that had sort of got rolling, I was like, oh, maybe I can get poetry published. Maybe I could get short stories published. Mm. Like it just was, it hadn't occurred to me to try and get someone else to print it because I was just like, oh, well, you make a story, you photocopy tons of copies of it, and you sell it, and then that's it. Uh, mm-hmm. But once I, I had got some encouragement from them, I was like, oh, okay, maybe I can write things for other magazines. Or other mm. Yeah. So. Oh, wow. I like that. It served as like a, a point of inspiration or I guess not motivation, but like support. Like, oh, I wrote this. Hey, I can do more. This is just a first step for me. Because I think the first book is so daunting to so many new writers that they're mm-hmm. like, I, I can't even think about finishing the first book. And mm, it's just yeah. nice to hear such a positive experience. Yeah, super positive. And you said that you compiled a few different texts that became Small Beauty. Like, was it like, Originally, were those texts like separate stories or were they all kind of part of this like larger cohesive narrative? So they were kind of separate stories, like separate fragments. I had one fragment that sort of became Sandy's narrative and the narrative with the, the goose um, mm. that I've been rolling around in my brain for a while. And then I had another narrative that was Bernadette and Diane's love story. Mm. And then I'd just been... Like because of the work that I do now and work that I was doing before, like had just been writing reflections on the friendships that trans women had and have Mm -hmm. and what that means for us and how we relate to each other and things like that. And so there were lots of interactions that turned into May and Annette's friendship. Mm. So those three sort of spheres were bumping around my hard drive for a little while. And then I was like, actually, I think these all fit together. Like they're, Mm-hmm. they're part of one story oh yeah. huh interesting interesting hmm yeah. but yes so do you have like a writing routine um and like if oh. so like how, like i guess how would you describe <laughs> it <laughs> i wish that i had a writing routine um toronto is an absurdly expensive city to work in so hmm. or to work in to live in so most of us are just working all the time and i'm i'm not anymore but i think like a lot of people that i know that live in toronto or like working full-time jobs or in school part-time and then we're trying to like make art <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and art on the side it's, art yeah. on the side and so writing really comes in fits and spurts for me the last little while I've been trying to I mean I can't get myself to write every day I want to but it's just it's hard to fit it in so I've been at least a few times a week trying to carve out a bit of time just to do either journaling or imagining and um, I rely mm-hmm. really heavily on the voice memos on my iPhone <laughs> oh nice you know because okay. like, i have this lovely dog that i live with and we go for walks a lot and i'll get ideas but know that i won't have time when i get home like i'll have to go to work i'll have to get ready for work or something like that so mm-hmm. i'll just record the idea on the voice memos and then come back to it a little later when i have time to sort of flesh it out a bit mm-hmm. oh, okay i like that it's yeah. so interesting i'm sort of in the i guess planning stages of this like larger novel that I want to write mm-hmm. sort of like in the outlining stage I guess and like cool. I do the same thing like sometimes I have little ideas that come to me and I'm just like let me just let me just do a quick recording and then I'll record it for like like I'll be talking to my phone for like 30 minutes and I'm like yeah. Marcy, <laughs> sweetie like young lady like you could have just written this like honestly at this point <laughs> like the yeah. convenience factor like whatever but um yeah that's so cool okay yeah I like oh, that yeah. do you ever find that your recordings or your books tell you something 
like in the process of writing that you discover something about yourself or do you find that you've already discovered it and now you're putting it on paper? Mm. Oh, that's a great question. Wow. I think both happen for okay. sure. There's like definitely times where I'm like, here's an idea. I want to, like, I, I have a clear idea of what it is. But then I think, yeah, with other stories, no. Sometimes I, I just sort of start and I start writing and they show me something. I uh, mm-hmm. was writing the story that I wrote for Rice Paper Magazine. Um, mm-hmm is about this trans woman who's having trouble sleeping and just snacking really intensely in the fridge and like (laughs) eating all sorts of weird stuff. Um, And then, and while she's doing that, she gets visited by her, her dead grandfather who also used to do that. Oh my God. And that just came out of me like doing that, like being up late at night eating and sort of writing about it. And then imagining, like remembering that my grandfather used to do weird stuff like that. He's still alive, okay. but lives in uh, outside of Shanghai. Mm. Um, gotcha. And uh, as I was writing it, I realized that, yeah, I think I realized a lot more about my grandfather and who he was and what his relationship to trauma and childhood and family was as I was like creating this character that was very much inspired by him. And I, mm. yeah, I think it, it gave me a different understanding of who he was and mm. why he did some of the things he did and just like the ways that trauma impacts generations, right? This idea of intergenerational trauma and just so many mm. things that we learn from the people who raise us, not just the abusive things that we learn or the protective things that we learn, but the coping strategies, right? The ways that coping mm-hmm. strategies get shared, right. you know, like this is what you do when you're sad or when you can't sleep, you stay up all night and you, eat condiments out of jars and watch weird <laughs> movies right like, this, like wait why did he do this all the time he's like oh right. so yeah oh my god it's so oh. interesting that you say that because we were talking to larissa lai a couple of weeks ago and well you got to talk to larissa lai her books are so cool yeah yes. <laughs> yeah so we, cool. um they're like pretty dope story like we read Tiger Flu, and at the end of it, me and Marcy were our minds were blown. We were like, "Wait, <laughs> is everyone dead? Is everyone a clone? What's happening?" But um... was still recovering, still recovering. <laughs> yeah. My mind is like, "What?" <laughs> but um, and she was talking a lot about how a lot of our memories or a lot of the things that we think are the essence of us are actually from other people and what they've told us. And, mm. you know, that kind of being passed down from us. And mm-hmm. like, if you're an immigrant, your whole memories of your country could be someone's stories to you and you yeah. intrinsically think they're your own, which they are, but it's not yeah. much different than like a clone or a robot. And it, yeah, we were all like, once again, mind's blown. <laughs> yeah. That's such, yeah, there was, I wish I could remember where I saw it. I saw this really cool exhibit, tiny art exhibit by someone named Florence Yi between myself and others. And she took things like rice bags and teacups and she calls it Cantonese kitsch and sort of reworked it and then talked about diaspora relying on a, she calls it an unwarranted nostalgia. Oh. Seeing that and being like, yes! Because, you know, you, you get nostalgic and I think very much the like May's character, like she's never been to China, but there's this nostalgia for right. her idea of the place mm-hmm. and the nostalgia for the idea of how she should be acting or what that is. But it's never something that she's experienced anywhere other than in Ontario. Right. You know? Got you. Oh, I love this idea. 
which yeah. made me think of Commander Worf, which maybe is a whole other <laughs> podcast. But <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know if either of you watch Star Trek. Um, um not enough, but no. <laughs> I was like yeah, a Star I, I, Wars I girl. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's lots about Star Trek that is not okay. But Commander Worf is this Klingon who was raised by humans. And mm-hmm. a lot of his character's development involves him like oh. learning what it means to be Klingon, taking on Klingon culture, and then being like so intensely Klingon, like mm-hmm. more so than some Klingons. Like uh, <laughs> I was watching it a couple months ago and I was like, oh my God, Worf is a child of the diaspora. <laughs> like, right. This that is, feels uh, too real. Right? I was like, oh, I relate to this guy. Anyway, because aren't the Klingons? I feel like in Star Trek, the Klingons are like not antagonistic, like they're bad people, but like oftentimes everyone's mad at them for something. So for him to be raised by humans and then to suddenly find his patriotism to Klingons, like that actually is a metaphor that probably a lot of people can relate to. Oh boy. Right. Well, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Speaking of of that, when you were writing, (laughs) well, I guess kind of speaking of that. I would like to know kind of your motivations behind May and Sandy and even Diane, even though she's problematic, but, um, <laughs> you know, what was, cause you say it was kind of in your computer and it was just kind of floating around in different pieces, but yeah. What was your inspiration between about the characters or the whole book? Part of it was wanting to see a story that was reflective of who I am in the world mm-hmm. um, and not seeing that. And also thinking about like, what story is it okay for me to tell, right? Like, there's lots of, like, I was like, oh, I want to write about East Asian trans people. But then I was like, well, from my positionality and who I am in my life, like, what's a story that I can tell and feel okay about? And so Mm. then I was like, oh, yeah, this Mm. this relationship. And because there's lots happening around me, I wanted there to be a story where there's a, trans woman of color who is like who's the person that guides you through this sort of disjointed narrative but the focus isn't about her transition or it isn't about how hard it is to be trans the focus is about Mm. her sort of like going through life and having relationships with family and relationships with friends like Mm. yeah like a book that was about life as a trans person that wasn't so obsessed with the things that we usually see like transition medical transition or and I know May does get beat up, but the focus of the book isn't so much on violence. Not mm. that that isn't something that we shouldn't be talking about all the time. But I was like, I'm interested in this narrative that sort of explores a little bit more about that. Um, mm. Gotcha. And I wanted May to have someone in her life that wasn't trans that just kind of unequivocally loved her. Mm. And that was sort of where Sandy started to come on in. I was like, I think. His character has problem has poor relationships with her parents, like. But then I was like, who could she have in her family that was just like there for her, you know? Um, right. And that's that's sort of how Sandy came in, and uh, like I said, I'd already been sort of working on this construction dude narrative for mm. a little while, and I was like, yes, that's the connect. Interesting, yeah. interesting. Do you? This is like very random. And feel free to be like Marcy, what the fuck? But um. <laughs> like, <laughs> I am like obsessed with Hazel and I don't oh know why. Like, <laughs> what was the motivation behind Hazel specifically? Dead. <laughs> so um, my partner and I have a dog. Uh, her name is Gracie and she's a little blue healer. Uh, much like Hazel. And mm. 
I just spend so much time with this dog and she's such a solid companion. And I really wanted to have that <laughs> in the book. I was just like, <laughs> I just love this dog so much. Like you should be, in, you should be reflected in literature. So oh. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we appreciate, we appreciate it for honestly. <laughs> yeah. And like uh, dogs are so great. Animals are so great. Cause they give you like such different, always sincere reactions. Like the, the reactions mm-hmm. from animals are so genuine. Right? Mm. filters not worrying about impressing me totally <laughs> you know yeah so yeah we definitely so, gave so... hazel her props in our... <laughs> oh yes it, yeah <laughs> like what's hazel up to what's she doing <laughs> right oh my gosh so that's so funny but but yeah so i guess transitioning a little bit something i found really interesting about small beauty was that i mean a lot of the central cast like was either like not alive or they were just kind of absent and in the moment that you know may sort of kind of going through this time like what was it like writing a book like that where most of the central cast wasn't necessarily around for one reason or another like Mm -hmm. how did that i guess impact like the world building and like character relationships and stuff like that like i'm so curious what that process was like i guess like and in a practical sense, the process was kind of tricky. Eh? Like, there was a couple weeks where I just took over a wall in my room and put, like, had these little bits of stories and had them taped up in their sections all over the wall, trying to figure mm-hmm. out an order so that you had the information you needed as you were reading. Because things happen separately for folks, like he said. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to make sure that things are referenced in the same way. And I know <laughs> Oliver, bless their heart, we had to do a lot of work being like this doesn't make sense like <laughs> you know, what happened to time here and i have problems with tenses also so they're like is this happening in the past is this happening now what's like what do you mean mm-hmm. um <laughs> so, yeah back to our like conversations about time and it being tricky i find it very tricky so that that process was slow going and there was definitely a lot of like rewrites and errors and continuity problems in terms of like the actual writing, I don't know. I feel like that came naturally. I don't know what that says about me, but <laughs> mm. that was, yeah. Some folks have said that there's like a disconnected way that May seems to interact with the world. And mm. I hadn't really noticed it until people had reflected that back to me. But I was like, yeah. And I think that makes sense given the narrative, but it also makes sense in the, the kind of world that she exists in, where she's like, mm. in mm. many ways, othered but also in lots of other ways like maybe not read as the thing that she is so there's this kind of like disconnect and separation that i think she perceives and she also like plays into um, mm-hmm. yeah in her life so it being primarily her story i think like that disconnect works in terms of the ancestors and stuff just showing up i was like well if you're ghosts like mm-hmm. just come when you want to or when you need to <laughs> you're unbothered <laughs> you're like, oh. right because <laughs> probably the is just here all of a sudden <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah totally and it's like also i was trying to reflect the grief like this is not something that's linear right and when you're mourning people that have passed on it doesn't always come in a a clear path it it right. shows up it spirals around it goes away like it, it's you know it can be seemingly random so mm-hmm. i think in her process of mourning sandy and how that triggers mourning her family 
in general. Mm. It means that all of these memories are coming to her. Right. Gotcha. Out of order, in a mess, you know? Yeah. I was going to say, the book was very feelings first. And feelings aren't, as you said, they're not, they don't go in time, sequential time. I, yeah. Memories and feelings. It's like interstellar when he like goes back into that like wormhole and then he's yeah. talking to his daughter and you're like, this can't happen. And they're like, the answer is love. And you're like, I guess. But <laughs> <What>? <laughs> but like, it's that same thing, right? Like feelings just <laughs> like, what the like, I'm like, what is that? Oh my God. Thank God. But, I was um, just talking to someone about interstellar last night, actually. Oh yeah. Um, this oh, yeah. guy, a friend of my brother's who does, uh, math and physics and he was telling me that there's actually some parts of interstellar that are accurate like mm-hmm. in terms of physics and i was like no way but right like, going behind time and everything yeah, yeah. right right but that concept that like <laughs> love, <laughs> that love and feelings and grief those things are you know if someone passes away it's not like you suddenly forget all about them and they never yeah. happened so yeah mm-hmm. And they become connected to objects and spaces right. and, you know, uh, things like that. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, very much in the way Diane, when she comes into the, or can't come into the house or she's having a hard <laughs> time, like that whole, it feels very real, right? Like, oh, mm-hmm. you can see how that feeling would last or make you upset. But right. speaking of upsetness, I think I'm going to keep, see if I can do this the whole show. Speaking of, um. <laughs> Come on, transition. Yes, transition. Um, I was really what really touched me a lot about small beauty was the discussion about anger and the philosophy around it. Just because it's something I think about a lot too, a lot about what to do with the hate that the world gives you or the hate that you're dealing with for whatever reason that you have it. And a lot of the things you said were, were really interesting, and yet. You know when someone tells you something that you need to hear and you don't want to hear it? Like, that was me. I was like, I mean, I guess I can get over my feelings. Like, I guess. But but when you said, <laughs> um, but when you said that anger in the book, that, like, I think it's Sandy. He says that anger is like a thunderstorm or like a rock. It's supposed to break through something. It's supposed to help you get somewhere. Yeah. Um, I just want to hear your thoughts on, yeah, just all you talked about with anger and, and your thinking and thoughts on that. Yeah. All my thoughts on anger. Sorry, that's a big question. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I think that was me writing something for myself that I think I needed to hear. Um, wow. Because I think anger is like, a, oh, yeah, like there's so many different ways that hate is thrown at so many different bodies in the world that we live in. Um, mm-hmm. and it's so violent and, and so constant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think. There's just so many, like, you know, there's dramatic ways like physical violence and then, like, insidious ways that come through, like, institutional violence or bureaucratic violence. Um, Mm. But you notice them all, right? Like, you feel them all when you're, you know, being forced to go to some bullshit resume writing workshop for um, (laughs) welfare because they're like, well, have you tried this to get a job? And you're like, there are no fucking jobs. (laughs) (laughs) Also, no one's going to hire me. I'm trans. I'm going to walk in there and they're going to be like, uh, although I will say that's changing a lot in Ontario now. Um, Mm. But yeah, that feeling or, you know, the feelings of when you do finally get a job, how heavily you're tokenized and or how, you know, or speaking for myself, like how heavily, like I know I have been tokenized. And yeah, so having that and, 
just feeling its effects on my body, like, you know, mm-hmm. not being able to sleep. My digestion is, you know, has been really spotty because of stress. And, you know, I know mm-hmm. so, many, so many people with <laughs> PTSD and, you know, all of these things that become medicalized, like depression and, and whatnot. And, mm-hmm. and seeing the way that anger, like, because of the things that people will do to you or things that systems will do to you, the anger just like eating away at your your body and your mind mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. just destroying relationships with each other. Like I don't know what it's like in the communities you've been part of, but I feel like there's so much lateral violence in Oof. queer communities and like yeah. you know, POC communities, just you know, the ways that we end up treating each other. Um you know, and all of our unprocessed trauma comes out right. and when we try to date mm. each other, like all this. Oh, you know? my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, so, God. <laughs> thinking about the ways that I think anger is such an important emotion. I think that we need it. I think that it, it's such an energetic feeling and it it can drive work it can guide you and all of these things. But really letting it um, just letting it show you a problem and then letting it move through you is sort of what i was trying to get through with those mm. ideas there's a, a piece in the Tao Te Ching that talks about like being like the weather like let your emotions be like the weather when it's raining it's raining um mm. and then Ooh. the sky clears right so right. when you're angry you'd be like be angry feel that anger mm-hmm. what does it tell you let it clear and then go somewhere with it you know and that's what i was trying to tell myself and also I guess anyone who reads the book. Wow. I really, really like that because I think, yeah, anger seems just the idea of letting it flow through you, like as something that doesn't end, it keeps going. I I don't know, somehow that metaphor, that's one thing I'm not good at. I hold on to it. Sometimes I feel like I nurse it. I think you talked about in the book too, like nursing Mm -hmm. it like a child, like (laughs) needing it almost. And so you're like, you can just let it go or not let it go like you're ignoring it, but let it go like you felt it already. Yeah. Mm. Um, We're also not given places to put it right like you know when people express anger people get killed people get arrested you know families get broken up they get deported like it's Mm -hmm. not like people are like oh please express your anger here we want to hear (laughs) it (laughs) (laughs) so it's hard like of course we hold on to it because i think most (laughs) certainly most people in positions of power don't want to hear right you know what's making black folks angry what's making indigenous folks angry what's making people of color angry or like queer folks trans mm. folks like they don't want to know that because it fucks with the whole system that they've made up right like, oh um, my gosh and then it's, it's so hard because it's like you don't want it to consume you but then it's like you go yeah. outside and there's like one hundred thousand reasons right for it's exactly. being kind of triggered again and it's just like oh my mm. god it's just yeah. the amount of just like psychological maintenance that you have to yeah. do kind of exist it's just it's oh my god i'm wow yeah and it's hard because yeah like I, that definitely resonated a lot for me as well because it's just like it's like you see may's life and i'm like i like you have so many reasons to be angry like, <laughs> right. I, like, I get, like oh my god um but it's just at the same time it's like you just have to at that that balance it's like i'm not sure if it's ever like a graceful place that one ever really meets maybe it's just like a constant mm. sort of maintenance process but yeah that definitely was something that that resonated for me as well 
Yeah, I but yeah, but speaking of things, uh, look at me. It sounded like Akko. Speaking of things, uh, <laughs> so like, speaking of uh, just, you know anger and like kind of justifiable anger and things like that. So I I, I would love to actually talk a little bit about Diane's character. <laughs> so yeah. when she right, so we all know where this is going. So yes, obviously you know, when she met May, um, you know they had dinner. We were all surprised to see her like so blatantly misgender may and like really just have no understanding of like may's identity as a trans woman and i i I guess what was interesting about that was that earlier in the book you know it was sort of framed that you know whenever may would go to visit aunt bernadette and sandy that was sort of like her place to really like truly be herself in the woods and so since obviously aunt bernadette and diane has such a a close relationship over such a long period of time and aunt bernadette presumably understood May's identity, yeah. who she was. Yeah. I, I guess I'm kind of curious, how did that disconnect happen with Diane? Like, how was mm-hmm. it that still able to, like, right. not understand May at all, despite her relationship with Aunt Bernadette and their closeness and, and all of that? Yeah. yeah, that's a great question. And I sort of struggled a little bit with how I was going to write Diane. I was like, am I going to make Diane say these awful things and then redeem herself or whatever? Because I was like, oh, you know, it, it would be cool if May just had, like, a sweet buddy in the, the country. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, I guess a couple of things. Like, Bernadette and Diane's relationship is quite fraught. And Diane's, like, absent for long periods of time. So they had never really met before. But Bernadette had heard about May, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, could sort of recognize who she was. Mm-hmm. Um, so Bernadette didn't have that direct experience. And then I really wanted because I do gender-based violence work and because queer community is tiny, like I wanted to have some reflection of these spaces where you're, you're like partially accepted as Mm -hmm. who you are. Right. Like it's not like queer community or lesbian community suddenly became super trans inclusive or it's not. Right. We just had a huge thing happen here where they, the Toronto public library let someone who's, like really openly turfy do a reading and there's big protests blah, blah, blah. Mm. so it's still it's still very present and with bernadette i was like bernadette is okay with like gayness right bernadette is okay with homosexuality but this idea of transness is is new and not okay and mm. also i wanted to like give some space to consider like the way like bernadette I was imagining Bernadette as this kind of like pretty awesome in some ways, like activist lady who had been doing gender-based violence work for a really long time, who had been really fighting for women's rights and like Mm -hmm. involved in like, like she alludes to it, like being involved in like sexual assault center work and movements like women's shelters and stuff. Someone who's been working actively against misogyny who doesn't yet have a good understanding of trans people and how trans women fit into that. Mm. right so i was trying to think about good ways to have just that kind of interaction uh, Mm -hmm. acknowledged and like i was reading the question that you had sent and i was like does it come out of nowhere i was like yeah i guess it it, it kind of does it's a surprise right because she's seeming to be so supportive and she's like oh right oh like do you have a toaster or whatever like she's making like little inside gay jokes to may um, mm-hmm. but it's not a full acknowledgement. 
right? Right. So in the ways that people are like, we love drag queens, but maybe they don't, you know, want trans women accessing women's services, things like that. Mm. And th- those those ideas exist together in LGBT community quite frequently, right. you know. So I wanted to have some some acknowledgement of that because I don't think that it's just a blanket acceptance of trans people in queer community at all. Uh, I see. Right. So it's yeah. It's the same earlier you were talking about lateral damage that we do to each other in these yeah. coalition building spaces. And your Diane kind of speaks to that complexity where it's like you're oppressed, I'm oppressed, and yet somehow yeah, here exactly. we are. Here yeah. we are. Yeah. yeah. That's really cool. I think because me and Marcy were like, Diane's trash. Like we were like 100%. <laughs> so quick. Um but it, it, I do like to hear about how you're talking about complexity here. And I think that is yeah. important to realize, especially as you get older in your life. It's just you have to recognize that things are complex. It doesn't feel nice to have to recognize yeah. that. It's just the mm-hmm. truth. So that's yeah. cool. Yeah. I mean, like my money job is doing gender based violence support work. Um, mm-hmm. And like there's so much amazing work that I think people did to establish sexual assault centers and, and in Ontario there's like a pretty big network of them and getting these spaces open and so much amazing work that they've done but then so much of that is also interlaced with really intense trans misogyny and right. trans exclusion so I'm like how do I balance this service is vital but I also wish that you would recognize more that also trans and non-binary people experience really high rates of sexual violence so like at high rates of gender-based violence mm-hmm. uh, i wanted that space for that and uh i think i'm still answering that question i don't know i just kind of started talking anyway blah 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 blah. cool (laughs) (laughs) oh my god Uh, no, you're no, I just, I like that you're just like let me just do a whole speed up myself. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. I think you do a good job of it. I think me and Marcy were talking about in the the podcast episode. I was saying that 15 year old me was so much like, how come people don't just do the right thing? How come everyone just isn't doing what what they're supposed to? And it, it's mm-hmm. so hard for me at a young age to understand the complexity of life and people and mm-hmm. how people change. And as you get older things start to make more sense and so i do think i liked how your book did a lot of that in a lot of ways sandy and may's relationship is complicated sandy loves her unconditionally but at the same time he definitely oversteps right doing things she told him not to nai nai and uh their parents they all have a triangle of you know, love, hate, that even, and even Diane, like when you, at first you're super mad at her, then you realize Diane tried to get Bernadette to go, you know, she said, let's go be together. And Bernadette is the one who said no. So yeah, I just like the complexity of the book and the things it kind of shows there. Thank you. Yeah. So another question that we both have <laughs> is in this, again, like a huge pivot, but um, <laughs> so like this goose, because yes, I, I just we, we we have we questions we certainly have so okay so obviously you know the goose is definitely there when sandy was a child like didn't like mm-hmm. i think burst it through his window like it attacked yeah. diane the first time that like you know like she came over to maze for dinner it was kind of the reason why sandy died and like it was kind of implied that like they had this like weird like like eye contact moment where like Sandy was like, um, do I know you? Like, it, it, like, <laughs> what, I guess what is like the significance and like the symbolism behind this 
interesting creature. <laughs> um, oh, so much. Um, <laughs> so I've heard lots of people explain the goose to me in different ways. Some people are like, oh, this is the goose is an embodiment of intergenerational trauma that like follows oh his family around. Huh. And I was like, oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, um, or the, someone else talked about the goose being a symbol for a diaspora. Like people have reflected back to me some really cool interpretations of the goose, which I think are all right. I think they're oh, all nice. correct. I'm like, yeah, totally. That sounds great. The goose is this otherworldly presence that follows them around. Part of the Sandy's relationship with the goose is that the goose kind of, there's the goose that somehow through breaking through the window breaks his fever when he's, he's very sick, mm-hmm. but right. passes away in that process. And then Sandy sees the goose in the transformer station and is like, oh, what, what is this thing doing there? Um, which ends up, you know, leading to his death. And there's this give and take balancing this idea of debt or responsibility. Sandy had been given his life in many ways by this random goose, mm-hmm. but then in turn, gives his life to save this other goose there was a point where i was thinking about writing it more explicitly that the goose was sandy like sandy had Mm. saved the goose from the transformer station and somehow become the goose and gone back through time and saved himself the child but i decided that was too complicated of an idea for a a book that was already all over the place this might be going too far Mm. um but then may's experience of the goose is very much like the goose is present for her in ways that Sandy and other family had. Mm. So there's a sort of familiar, familial connection to the goose that I wanted a representation of, of that bond that was outside of ghosts and outside of objects, but you know, mm. more I see. integrated into the world around them. Yeah. I see. Okay. So it is also intergenerational trauma and diaspora and all these. Mm-hmm. And did did Nine Nine know? Because she, you know, she like flies into the room where she's already there. I'm not sure if she's like this burden. This child will carry forever, very ominously before like disappearing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was like, what does Nine Nine know? Like, I was sitting there like Nine Nine. What's are you ever gonna tell us? Did Nine right. know the goose is? Maybe I'm harping too much on it, but <laughs> you know. Or is it like Nai Nai just understands the give and take of life? I mean, Nai Nai just knows. <laughs> Nai Nai simply knows. <laughs> she simply yes, knows. She knows. <laughs> yeah, I think that there's like an understanding of the give and take of life and mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. That actually makes sense because my grandma just be knowing stuff too. She yeah. Like, Same. Yeah, so. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you on that one. <laughs> I wanted to ask about the book has a lot of it talks a lot about kind of the intersectionality of race and gender and being an immigrant in different fashions and in different ways. Like there's one time where May's looking at the trans flag and she's she's got a problem with it. And she's like the centrist whiteness and, you know, binariness and and even just May and Sandy as, you know, Asian Canadians and kind of their relationship and how that plays, what their obligations are and, and how it relates to Diane. And as someone who is also an immigrant and just feels this intersection and it just, I was like, oh, this is again too real. Yeah. I wanted to just ask you about it. Yeah. Like race 
and immigration in the book. Yeah, or the intersectionality that May's experience. I guess for me, I was like, there's so much of gender that is coded as whiteness so quickly. Yeah. Even as a black mm. woman, my hair is so, you know, what is a woman's hair and what, yeah. what is to look feminine? And May kind of addresses that where she's like, she starts to talk about it. And I wanted to know what you were thinking about when you wrote that. And even just in your life, if you've seen that reflected and how you've combated it or not combated it. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, like, the examples that were given of, like, how to be trans people or, like, what trans is is often really centering white ideas of gender. Um, Mm. And I think, like, through colonization and immigration and migration, like, we get raised with specific ideas of who can do what and, and how. And I think with with May, she doesn't have like the examples and the sort of caretakers she have are she has around femininity in her life growing up are other trans women of color. Mm. Um and they're not she doesn't have like a, a cis Asian older sister or grandmother or auntie to like help her do that and if if she did like it's not clear that she would be accepted as a woman Mm. Um, but then there's this thing that I think happens when you're mixed where people are like oh you're doing that weird gay thing because of your white family they like you know they let you be gay and you know (laughs) so that I think is something that I wanted to talk about and then have lots of people in May's life who, I mean, are ghosts who are like cool with it because I wanted to push back a little bit on that. Uh, I don't know mm-hmm. if that sort of speaks to what you're saying or like, you know, this isn't something like, I think it's May's, May's mom is like, this isn't something that you would do if we were in China. Like, this is something that you're doing because we're here. Mm, um, and wow. While there may be some truth to that, like like being trans doesn't negate <laughs> your racial identity, right? right? But yeah. then there is sometimes there's this idea that oh, this isn't what we do. This is what you know people are allowed to do here. But then you're also faced with the ways that like LGBT services and culture is at least in North America like super white. Yeah, right? like the mainstream areas are super white and appropriate heavily from black culture without talking about it. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, but then there's an idea that this isn't something that folks of color would do. Like there's this messy grossness that happens there. And I think, yeah, I, I see. <laughs> that... Yeah, there's no right answer. Yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. That's a great, <laughs> right? Like you're. <laughs> you're addressing yeah. the complexity of this kind of stuff where people are like oh well this is like an american thing i don't know my immigrant kids are doing like a weird american thing or a weird canadian thing and you're like no yeah. it's mm-hmm. literally my identity is not like i didn't pick it up from a television show like what are you saying yeah, right. exactly. but at the same at the same time it's like how being here it's so many ways like the american way or the canadian way can influence you and you're like is that how we would have done it if we could have like organically thought of it ourselves without colonization and it's like Mm. i don't answer you know it's complex you're you're right there's no answer but you're trying to fight both of them so yeah Yeah. i liked your answer a lot (laughs) not that it matters I feel like you, you did a really good job summarizing what i was trying to say and, and, and yeah 
That's so interesting. And I guess an, another, just sort of, again, sound like Akko, like speaking of, I guess, these like Western I, like notions and sort of like cultural ideas, like I feel like death is something that's so mm. interestingly framed in this book. Like I feel like the way that it, it sort of, yeah, like sort of like lacks the same, I guess, finality or yeah, like finality of like one's life, like just by the fact that, you know, like, Sandy, you know, different moments comes back, as does Nai Nai and other uh, people in the book and stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I'm kind of just curious what inspired you to write about death in this manner and, like, I guess how that kind of interacts with our, like, usual, I guess, sort of, like, Western notions and ideas surrounding surrounding death. Yeah. I, so I there's a few things that sort of led to me wanting to have so many actively participating dead people in the book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like key parts of the story. Like. Yeah. It's like, I think, you know, when we're talking about diaspora and the stories that, that make up who we are, like my father immigrated to Canada and I, w- I was born here, but grew up with stories of, you know, what it was like for them in Hong Kong, what it was like during the Second World War in Shanghai before they you know, had to flee to Hong Kong basically and then mm. come here and then what it was like when they moved here to Canada. So I like grew up with all sorts of stories about what it meant to be here, what it meant to get here. And that f- for me means that those stories are really, they're very present in my day-to-day life. Like mm. what it means for me to be here, what it means for me to be this mixed race trans person existing now and how would I fit into those stories. And sort of referencing the, the Cantonese kitsch that I was talking about earlier, when I go to Chinatown and I see things the way that it evokes memories and experiences that I have had with family who have since passed on, um, mm-hmm. that I was like, well, the dead, like our, our ancestors are very much present in these manifestations and in our minds and in the formulation of who we are as people. Like They mm. don't go anywhere. And I really mm-hmm. liked what you were saying about your interview with Larissa Lai, where she was like, well, these things that form who you are are actually other people's memories and stories, because then you you take that on, right? Like you yeah. take that into your sense of self and how that creates your interactions with other people and, and with spaces. So and and that hand, I was like, well, but our ancestors are never not there, right? They're, they're never not present in, in mm. how we move or in what we look like, things like yeah. that. And then on the flip side, I really liked the idea that, you know, for someone that feels as isolated as May does or as many of us do at different points, that you're not you're not entirely alone even in those moments when you feel super, super alone and like, mm. there's no one around you. Like you're still the product of all of these people and that those people are, are still a part of your life and can still guide you. Mm-hmm. And in, in, the, in the book, obviously, they're like, coming and being visible presences and like providing stories but there's one section in the book where i talk about may walking through the forests and almost letting her ancestors see through her eyes um, yeah yeah and that kind of embodiment of their presence was sort of where i was going with that like you're not actually totally alone there are these people and ancestors around and customs to interact with your ancestors to you know help bring them into your mind and into your life that you know Mm -hmm. are really great ways to break down isolation or can be helpful in that way 
yeah so that that's why dead people are so active and there's, there's not a finality i don't think that there's a finality when we die but i know mm-hmm. like ancestor worship is such a a big part of so many chinese cultures that uh, it's like mm-hmm. you live with the dead the dead are there like mm-hmm. you know right. you leave food up for the dead you go to their graves you clean their graves like it's present you know mm-hmm. there's an acknowledgement that you're here in this physical realm for a while and then you're not right um, right but you're not necessarily forgotten so that yeah yeah that's that's what that was about well hmm. i it's like just, it. it's, sorry keep going i was gonna say it's like coco you know yeah, yeah. yes <laughs> oh my god i really love that movie me, yeah. me too uh, oh. i'll have to with you but um oh my god. Wow. Yeah, I, I think a lot of for a lot of people, right, ancestry. And in fact, it's really more like an, an enlightenment era idea, or it's at least a very new idea, right? That ancestry, your ancestry is your past and everything all of a sudden just ends, right? That you're not at yes. all connected. It's actually a much older thought that you're just a continuation of something that came before you. And so you can, I was about to say the avatar, you know, with Aang and he has all those, uh, the past people that come and he can take their power and stuff. Anyway, that's real nerdy. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I like that. Totally what I'm, totally what I'm vibing <laughs> on right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, uh, that's the sequel for Small Beauty. Uh, yes. Yes. May discovers all the superpowers that uh, right. Sandy and I had. And, yeah. Yeah. That's, like, that's actually a good question. We talked about this once. What are... Um, <laughs> Our what was it? Our bending power would be. I chose air. Marcy, you chose water. Yeah, I chose water. Yes. yes. <sighs> Do you have one? I don't know. I mean, I think I would want to say water, but okay, it would probably be fire. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Why do you yeah. say that? I mean, I'm an Aries. I'm really angry all the time. <gasps> Me too. <laughs> 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 I can't seem to quit smoking. Like, there's all these things. <laughs> I like fire is pretty prevalent. (laughs) I like it. No. Asazuko was great. I have so many feelings. Anyway. Oh, okay. I need to watch Avatar. Like, it's literally on my queue. And, like, I I just need to stop bullshitting and just just sit down and watch it, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. But, yeah. I mean, Akko, did you have any remaining questions? Or do you think we could probably wrap up? We could probably wrap up. I wanted to ask if you have any sort of advice or any just any thoughts about what you would tell a writer or even a reader or anyone at all actually just anyone yes <laughs> what would i tell anyone what would you say to anyone <laughs> <laughs> or maybe someone um, in your shoes when you were younger um what would i say i mean i feel like it's, it feels cliche to be like you should just keep at it and mm. and not stop mm. and like connecting with with other folks like I wasn't able to make it this weekend, which I'm kind of bummed about, but like, I think I had mentioned in emails to you, there's like a LGBTQ literary festival that happens here in mm-hmm. Toronto. And when I've gone in the past, it's been so amazing. Like the folks at Cloud Day Bookshop do an amazing job of it. And there's just all sorts of other writers at different stages in their careers or games or hustles, whatever you want to call it. And mm-hmm. they're just sort of hanging out, reading stuff, giving feedback chatting with each other there's panels where people are talking about writing so like meeting other people who are doing it is i think a huge part of it like community mm-hmm. as hard as it can be sometimes and as mean as we are to each other like 
Mm-hmm. It's so important. And I think if it's any kind of art, and my experience is mostly with bands and, and writing, but like great bands usually come out of a scene, right? Like mm-hmm. there's usually like a scene where people are going, they're playing shows, they're like uh-huh. hanging out with each other. And I think writing, like, I know because of this book and because of Ashley and Oliver, I've had an opportunity to meet some amazing writers and a bunch of other trans women. Like there's so many trans women writing amazing books in Canada right now. Mm -hmm. And we're all slowly getting connected to each other. And that that's really inspiring. That's so cool. Oh, you wrote this thing. You wrote this thing. And by getting out there and meeting other people and seeing people read like stuff in progress or stuff that's not quite finished or things that they wrote a while ago, whatever, like, Mm-hmm. seeing that seeing the spread of where people are at with writing really i think demystifies demystifies it a bit um, right because then you start meeting people who started their own magazines or like like you folks like you started your own podcast this is so cool like mm-hmm. um and then it it really like makes it clear that oh this is just people doing a thing like if you're not getting traction in in one area where you're trying to get published or something to take off and maybe start your own or maybe meet other people like i think Mm -hmm. that's that's been the most helpful for me and also not to worry about the end product so much i think that's weird to say but i think Mm -hmm. small beauty came easier for me than other things that i've done because i didn't have an idea of where i wanted it to be or what i wanted like i didn't set out to write a novel that would do super well or whatever like i wasn't like i'm gonna be new york times bestseller i just Mm want to write this thing because it's really fun right and then that helped make a book that i think is nice that i feel good about yeah advice to people is weird i don't know like (laughs) (laughs) i thought it was (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh that is so funny and and Kind of a a little bit of a actually not really much of a departure at all. I'm kind of curious. Do do you still think about like May and Sandy? Like did, mm. like do you feel like like once you finished the book, it was kind of like okay, like I'm done. Or do you feel like it still kind of continues in your mind a little bit? It still kind of continues in my mind for sure. Mm. I think a lot about Annette actually. Mm. Um, I'm like Annette is such a cool character that I didn't really explore too much, but she's a badass. Yeah. Um, and actually about almost a full year after the book came out i was walking on dundas street towards spadina that's where chinatown is and someone had spray painted on the sidewalk may come home um, Mm. in like white spray paint and spelled in the way that i spell it in the book and may Mm -hmm. is like not an uncommon name right so i'm like it could be about anything but i saw it i was like oh this is amazing. Yeah. Um, it, it's real. So I don't know. I think like anything, it's in my mind. It pops up. Got you. Got you. Interesting. So I guess to to wrap up, where can our listeners kind of like, you know, find and follow up with you? I have a sporadically updated Facebook page. <laughs> yes, you <I> do. <laughs> <laughs> Very. Yeah. I'm not the best with social media. It's, there's a website that's also very infrequently updated that has an email address <laughs> people can reach out to me anytime there mm-hmm. it's just my it's just my full name without a hyphen at gmail.com god you got you oh beautiful and uh yeah like i'm slow to respond but i will respond and then 
Metonymy, the folks who publish Small Beauty, um, mm. they're they're great. Like everything that they've published, I'm pretty stoked about. So they're just worth checking out in general. And there was a there's an Australian publisher called Brow Books that published the book in Australia. So I don't know if you have mm-hmm. listeners in Australia, New Zealand, but it's distributed there. Naya King just made a another volume of queer and trans artists of color. Um, mm. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah. Series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm in, I'm in volume three as are oh, nice. some amazing people. So I would really encourage folks to check that out. Yeah. Wow. Well, that, all right. I mean. Well, you, you, that, you heard that folks, you know, go <laughs> find the Facebook, go find the Naya King. She has a whole Wikipedia, so it's not hard. You can yeah. do it. <laughs> <laughs> you are capable. Yes, you are. Yes. But, Oh, my gosh, Yashink, thank you so much for all of this. This is so interesting and like yeah, deep lovely. and like hearted and just like just honestly such a pleasure to do this wow. with you. Like I yes. loved just kind of I mean, we already just loved Small Beauty so much. So just getting the chance to talk to you about it was just uh just incredible. So thank you so much wow. again for agreeing to do this. Yeah. And yeah, this was this was great, honestly. Yes. Thank you. Also, your yeah. voice is so incredibly soothing. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> bury that. <laughs> bury that. So. That's, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, yeah, so great. But, yes. But um, I guess to do our usual sort of, um, I don't even know what to call this part. But basically, we're, we're, there we go. Outro. I'm like, oh, words. Um, but, yes. So, for our listeners out there, if you want to send us you know, an email, like, you know, responding to this interview, if there are any thoughts you want to have us forward to Jaching, like you can definitely do that at thesecoloredpages at gmail.com. We also have a website at thesecoloredpages.com as well as a Twitter at the colored pages. Um, yeah, you know, maybe like, you know, leave a little rate, review, right. subscribe type of, you know, yeah. you know, just like help us out. But if the spirit moves you. Yes, yeah. If the spirit, <laughs> literally only if the spirit moves you, and no, like not for any other reason. I mean, but, except um, Hazel. Hazel will have. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hazel always a good reason. I'll, at all times. <laughs> but but yeah, but Akko, are there any other things we should leave our listeners with before we head out? No, I think that's it. It's just I want you all to remember. Until we see you again, remember to stay, stay colorful. colorful.